Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation Inclusive Leadership Podcast, which explores how we lead our colleges so that everyone is given a sense of belonging and is listened to and feels heard. People shine in the light of being paid attention to, being shown that they matter and are respected. All of our communities of staff and students need to feel this regardless of their background, class, race, gender, culture, religion, sexuality and disability. No one should be made to feel ashamed. In inclusive organisations, we do not treat people the same. We treat them with the dignity and respect they want to be treated by. We offer equality of opportunity to all. We will explore how current leaders are creating inclusive environments, how they lead with sensibility and are self-aware and know the impact they have on their organisations. They understand their own prejudices. Whilst no one has all the answers, we will explore the questions of how to change and adapt to meet the needs of everyone and do it by listening to frontline staff and students and acting upon what we hear. I'm really pleased today to introduce Jana and Desi, who are going to have a conversation with me on inclusive leadership. Jana, do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are? I'm Jana. I'm the CEO at College Cambria, which is a large further education college in North East Wales. Previous to that, I was principal at Hubert College in Liverpool for seven years. And previous to that, I worked as a vice principal in Blackburn College as well. And Desi. I'm Desi, Principal and Chief Executive of Cheshire College South and West, with campuses in Crewe, Ellesmere Port and Chester. Prior to being part of this Cheshire College, I was the Principal of South Cheshire College, which merged with West Cheshire College to form the college we are now. And prior to that, I was Principal for a couple of years at Yale College in Wales. My first question is to try and get you to explain what you understand by humanistic leadership and how you promote and enable inclusivity in the organisations you have responsibility for. So I'm going to start with you, Yana. What do you understand by humanistic leadership? I think, Sally, for me, it's probably in the title. It's about, actually, as a leader, understanding that what our primary role is, is working with human beings, with people. And actually, to do that, we often are guided by our policies and procedures, But actually, it's about also ensuring you have some empathy and understanding. And I think the only way to do that is ensure that we continually speak to as many people who work for our organisation, be them students, staff, external stakeholders, to constantly check that what we're doing reflects those lived experiences of the people that we're working with. And I think that Understanding and constant communication ensures that we provide that clear vision, but we also ensure that we have sort of a consistent approach that helps us ensure that the decisions we make are decisions which reflect as many people that we work for and work for us as as possible. So I think it is just about that constant, not just running with your policies and procedures, but talking to people and finding out what the impact is and seeing if you should change them or change the way they communicate or adapt things. 
And I think it's just a constant conversation that has to be done before decisions are made. How about you, Desi? What do you understand about humanistic leadership and how do you practice it in Cheshire? I think it's very much about the individual. When we talk about colleges and when I, when I introduced myself earlier, I referred to that we have campuses in three locations, but actually that's not the college. The college is made up of the individuals. That's the colleagues and the students, the staff and the students. That is the college. And actually that for me is the focus. It's the individuals. That's what makes the daily life within the college, the experience of students, how we support the community, but actually long-term about how we evolve and constantly adapt. It's all about individuals. In that sense, it's about getting to know those individuals and how they can individually contribute. And it's not something that we necessarily cracked, but we constantly work at and we've still got a long way to go. But it is recognising each and every individual. And there's many ways we try and do that, but a lot of it is trying to remove jargon. So even that statement or the, the phrase humanistic leadership for me can sometimes be misleading, but actually it's about the individual because, again, removing the jargon in wherever we possibly can. But it is about individuals for me. What about when you first started in colleges for both of you? And I'll ask you, Desi, first, and I'll come back to you, Yana. Did you feel included? Did you feel that individualistic nature that you've just talked about? And did you feel that you were really valued for who you were, Desi, not just another teacher, another person? I would say yes. And I think some of the reasons why I am as I am as a leader is as a consequence of those experiences, because the, you know, the phrase is we're a product of our genes and the experiences that we've lived. And I find myself constantly referencing back to when I first started working in the college. And it was a small six-form college setting, so it was a college, but it was small, but people individually knew you. And I remember my experience, actually, I did my teaching practice there and subsequently got a job, but it was that experience about feeling part of an organisation and not just a cog in the wheel. And that was really, really important. I felt as if I was making a difference, but I was supported and my views mattered and I was making a change. And I think that has fundamentally been a core part of how I've been a leader throughout my time in colleges in various roles, but particularly as being a principal and CEO for the last 10 years. I think that is the core of that because about how I was able to contribute from an early age. It's harder now because we're such a larger organisation with 600 staff in this back, continue to make that connection. And I think in that 10-year career, where I found the hardest was moving from when it was just South Cheshire College in a single campus, when you can sense and feel things, to move into a three-college campus. And, and I'd remember speaking to colleagues who did that, who had that role already and saying, well, you won't be able to do that. And I'm glad I actually did persevere with that and trying to create that sense of belonging and sense of getting to know as many people and getting that feedback. And I'm not saying we've cracked it, but we are definitely on that journey. What about you, Liana? Did you feel that sense of belonging? Could you bring your true self to work when in your very early days? No, and I, and I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. I, I think, you know, you take your personality and sometimes your personality wins through and sometimes it doesn't. And absolutely, the reason I wanted to end up being a leader was the first college that I worked at. I didn't believe that either staff or students were being treated in a way that would really 
bring out the best in them and realize the only way to actually do that wasn't being a lecturer, it was actually being a manager and being able to empower staff to be better and come up with better ideas of how we could empower our own students as well, particularly in very deprived areas of the country as well. I think I've learned as much from very poor leadership around me as I have from very good. And I think, you know, I've had to go through some very painful jobs along the way, but they've probably taught me more about how to be a better leader on my journey. You know, it'll never be complete, that journey. And they've taught me as much as what not to do as to what to do, because you see the impact of poor decisions on people and seeing the impact of poor decisions on people makes you realise because it's those things that make you change. They're those things that you go, that, that realise that empathy and inclusivity are so important. And when just blanket decisions are made and you see the impact on individuals, you realise you've got to change things because that passes on to the students. And ultimately, our role is to ensure students can become the best they can in our organisations. But to do that, the people who teach them and support them and do everything at a college have to be the best that they can as well. So I think it's a mixed bag. I've learned a lot from poor. I've learned loads from very, very good leadership as well. And I think it's that journey that Desi was talking about as well, that journey that you go on, that that changes you. And you're certainly not the same person at the beginning as you are towards the end. And, you know, if only you'd been that person at the beginning, you'd be much, much better now. But that will never happen, I don't think. I think you've got to learn from all of that and, and, and move around to find it out. On the back of what uh, Jan has just said there is that, she said the phrase, I wish I could go back and tell myself, but I would say that because the fear of making mistakes in those early days as a leader, actually you realise now that actually that is the best learning experience. And in terms of all of this, in terms of we talk about humanistic leadership, it's about ourselves being reflective and we learn more from being that constant reflective individual. If we are critical or constantly saying, well, that didn't work well, that didn't work well, I think that is actually about looking at the impact on individuals. And I think it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. And I think that's probably the biggest learning curve I've had. And I think what's nice about what you said is that it gives people hope when you're in a job, maybe, where culturally it's a real mismatch. You can think, well, if I can work through this and get promoted, then I can make a huge difference to the world. So not to give up, to work at it and become the best person you can be. I'm going to ask you to follow up, Jana, and then I'm going to ask you the same, Desi, is how have you developed the cultures or are you developing them? And I think to say a culture's developed, a culture is is a living organism. So how are you trying to develop these inclusive cultures that are actually inclusive to all, not just to some subsets? I think it's something that will never be fully achieved, I have to say. And I think the more you think about trying to involve as many people in your decision making as possible, you realise it's, it's so it's such a big challenge. You know, similar to Desi, it's a big organisation. We have you know, almost 1,300 staff in different roles on five different campuses. Each of those with their lived experience will have a different challenge, will have a different expectation, will have a different need. And it's trying to ensure you do the best for as many as you can. And to do that, you have to have as many conversations as you can, while at the same time still having to make tough decisions. You know, and we talk about fairness and kindness, I think. Some decisions that we make might not always come across that, even if you've tried your hardest to look at everything that you can. For some individuals, it might not come across like that. And then that's about that communication. But I think... You know, I've learned 
to be open and honest when I made a mistake, when I got it wrong, and say, you know, I, sorry, I did get that wrong, actually. And I think as society changes, I think it's much more acceptable for leaders to show vulnerability. I think that's okay. And I think because we're, we're not in any way, shape or form the, the, the final article of what a leader should be, we're just still on that journey. And I think that vulnerability equally shows that, you know, as Desi said, we make mistakes and then we learn from them. But also we, we say we made the mistake. Something I didn't do particularly well, only just a year ago, what came off that was something really positive, which was, you know, we've developed now social partnership at the organisation. And that social partnership ensures that we communicate really key issues at the beginning of a process, not at the end. And that allows more and more people's opinions and views and the impact of what that decision would happen at the beginning of that conversation. And I think for me, that that's that little additional thing that's developed now. And social partnership isn't easy. It requires people to be almost on the same page in terms of communication and cooperation. But I think it is a starting point of saying as leaders, I think traditionally we sometimes have made decisions because we're the leaders and then we tell people what those decisions were and allow that communication. I think the change for me now is actually right at the beginning when we're starting to muse over what we might be doing, have those conversations with with key people, as in staff, students, at the beginning of that process. And I think as we, we might therefore start to develop even more that ability to include more opinion and maybe when we come up with decisions have more positive impact on more people in the organisation. Could you just explain what you mean by a social partnership? Yeah, so uh, Wales has introduced a social partnership bill, um, which is by law has to be done in public sector organisations. As a college, we're not public sector. So we've set it up ourselves. So we have a, all the unions have come together and somebody has now become a social partnership lead. We give them a lot of time to understand a lot of things that go on from um, a lot of decisions we make. So a lot of you know, political, a lot of policies and procedures and bring a number of people in at an early stage. But also they go out and speak to, to staff as much as we do. Because I think some of the challenges that we've had is how do we get to all staff? You know, when we make decisions, we'll often have to go to the reunions. And how do we stop that being a block, but actually a joint discussion? So social partnership is about basically employers, unions, staff, all coming together to make decisions at the beginning of a process rather than at the end. So we do that on almost everything now. And we are developing a charter to ensure that all our staff are involved in that. And actually, that just starts that communication and discussion at the beginning. I think that it removes the fear factor and it removes us as leaders having one opinion and not taking those views in at an earlier stage. So it's it's going to take years yet to really, really finite it, but I think it's going in the right direction. So, Desi, what about for you? How have you developed a culture of inclusivity or how are you going on the journey? We're definitely on that journey. I think I'm, I've been very, very mindful that um, as leaders, we set the tone, we set the behaviours, and that's very important. And as the principal, I'm aware of that very much, that you know it's right saying one thing, but you've got to practice those behaviours and those values. So one of the very first things that we did at the Merge College is that um, we did lots and lots and lots, and, a, and a, I can't emphasize how many of these that we did with groups of staff, colleagues, no more than 25 in a room. And we went through where we want to be in three years' time because the two colleges had come from very different positions. 
But more importantly than that, was what are the values of our new organization? And that is something that we keep referencing and keep going back to. And um, there's lots of things that we do on a small daily basis that I think are contributing to us being an organization that's more inclusive, involving more individuals, but actually just being valued as an individual. And it may not be suitable for all colleges, but it works for us. And um, as part of a leadership team that um, doesn't matter which campus that we are on on that particular day, in the morning, we are at the front at the doors by the barriers as the students come through, looking the students in the eye, smiling and saying good morning, expecting them to say that back to us because that's part of that employability skill. But it's about making that connection with these thousands of students. But at the same time, we're meeting the staff and we're saying good morning to them as well. And it's an opportunity for them to catch us. Now, again, one of the things I was told that when we went for a single college to a multi-campus college, that wouldn't be possible. But actually, I'm glad we persevered. That has been possible. And you'll be surprised how often people will say that makes a difference. So I'm going to give you lots of small things that we do that are helping us on that journey. We also have a rule amongst the leadership team here that um, if you're in your office, your door's wedged open, okay? Unless you're in a meeting or unless you're on the phone, the door has to be wedged open. And one of the things I say to staff when I meet them and I meet every single member of staff that starts new and during that induction, I always say we ask staff to call us out as leaders if that isn't the case. And it's just that accessibility because it's too easy as leaders, because we're so busy and leaders across the sector are just under so much pressure. You could just be stuck in your office, in meetings, doing documents, looking at a screen and not actually being visible. So that's quite important, that visibility. I'm going to give you another small thing is that I get a daily absence report, not because I want to good to know for a number of fronts, but actually when I see that colleague in the corridor two days later, I can ask them, you were off, what? So it's just connecting those small things. Whenever there's a bereavement for a member of staff, a birth or a wedding, I will personally handwrite things to them. So we encourage that across the leadership team. Small things that we're doing that will make a big difference to individuals on a daily basis, trying to make that connection about being inclusive. If I came into your college and talked um, to random staff and said, okay, what do you think of Desi's and the senior team's biggest success in creating this inclusive environment what do you think they would say was your biggest success and what do you think they'd like to see you do more of I think it would be the sense of belonging I do think that would be the case and I think the vast majority of them would would say that they would be surprised as to how much I know of them and individually and about them as well. I think in terms of going forward, what would they want more of? What could we do more of beyond the normal workload pressures, I suppose? It's, <laughs> it's not losing sight of that and just continuing with it. It was something Jana said earlier that when I knew that we would be talking about this and humanistic, and she reminded me about when she talked, when she said it, is that the, the most challenging times of making sure that we continue to do this is through the difficult times and when you have to make those difficult decisions because you want to take people's views on, but you still sometimes, as leaders, we all know, have to take decisions that are not going to be popular. But what you have to remain sight of is knowing that in the long term, it's about respect and not necessarily being popular. It's about gaining respect. And then I think, actually, if you ask colleagues about that, the number one thing I think they say is communication, how well we share information, communicate with them, 
It's never perfect because we can constantly do more. I think the thing they would say, Sally, is inconsistency. And that's something that challenges myself and some of my colleagues about how do we get that consistency in some of those things I've described across all of our leadership team. And I definitely think that's where we need to do more on. It's inconsistent. And that, I think, is the key for us. Okay, so when I get in my car and I cross the border and I'm in sunny Wales and I go and see all your staff, what do you think they would say? Oh, this is definitely on and the seniors team, biggest success. It's been amazing. But we'd just like them to do a bit more of this. Desi mentioned about sort of, you know, having that open door policy. And we tried to take it a step further. And I'd hope that's what maybe that they saw that we took the step of thinking of every type of even the smallest barrier and removing them. So we we removed all the offices of all our senior management teams. So no senior manager has an office at all on any site. And we put agile hubs in. So everybody works in basically a collective office, depending on what site they're on. And then we have lots of glass pods everywhere where you can have your meetings. We changed the dress code. So there is no dress code. You can come to work in as long as you're smart, whatever you want, really. Uh, Recognising that that's a barrier for some people in terms of traditional dress and particularly of management, that traditional dress. Even the conversation with students and how you dress can change the way that you have that conversation as well. Sometimes a barrier is physical and actually you can remove some of them things. And I think therefore they would say that arguably we're more accessible. So that if you want to have a conversation, you can just actually walk into an area and see someone. And often we'll get people coming out of one of the pods from a meeting and passing going, oh, could I just sort of ask you a question? And actually, some of those little things are removing some of those barriers. So I'd hope they would sort of say that has meant that all managers are not that step distance way. Actually, we're much more integrated as a collective into decision making and conversation. But I think very similar to what Desi said, and this is a real challenge of, of a big college as well, that consistency. I and a lot of my team might say, this is how we should behave. These are the ways that we should do things. But actually, if we think we've got people at the beginning of that leadership ladder and they were like I was and Desi was and you were 15, 20 years ago, still going, I think I have to behave in a completely different way. And as you get older and maturer you realise actually you can be more vulnerable and you can, you know, I think you're just more confident so you can do things that when you're not confident as a leader, you do slightly differently. And I think therefore, and the part of the social partnership is what we've heard is this might be said, but actually it doesn't always happen on the ground through some of our leaders and managers. And that's just, you know, an ongoing challenge is how do you get that consistency when you get two groups of people who talk to each other within the organisation who say, well, you know, we're allowed to do this, we're more challenged on something, and how do you get that consistency? And how do you know about it, particularly from my view? How do I hear that's happening? Well, actually, that social partnership is helping with that, but I think that would be definitely that consistency. It doesn't happen the same on every site for everybody, and I think that is an ongoing challenge for us, particularly as an organisation. would also be worth saying to those same staff, how do they and their teams help their students overcome it? Because if I think of some of the teams I taught in a long time ago, there were five of us delivering a BTEC programme to a group of 30 students. We were all very different. And I'm not sure in those days you considered the different behaviours, different expectations that we're talking about. And staff are often very quick to say upwards, this is not acceptable. 
They don't always reflect, oh, well, I'm going to change this in my team meeting. I'm going to move the question. And as I'm with you, Jana, I'll ask you first, what makes you feel respected and safe in environments where you are absolutely the minority voice? I think it's really, really difficult because I think feeling safe um, it is based on, you know, and I've said it a couple of times, that lived experience. Have you had a bad experience in that position before? You're going to be much more vulnerable to speak out or say something in those positions again. You know, I've got dyslexia, so I'm, I'm you know, we, we do a lot on neurodiversity, but I hid that dyslexia even up to being a vice principal, I think, uh, pretending I didn't have it until I was sort of called out on it. And now I'm a big advocate of it because I realise that I hid that and I, you know, and I still have many, you know, particularly in FA, we've got hundreds, if not thousands of staff who probably have never been diagnosed and they're hiding it and they still think it's a vulnerability, even though we've got students who are trying to help with that situation. 10, 15 years ago, it was all about, can we get more females into leadership and you sort of stood your ground and worked your way up and, and actually realised that you could have a voice and you did challenge that. Actually, the wonderful thing now about inclusivity is that it's, it's, it's all levels. We, we shouldn't just talk about, I mean, it's intersectionality. We shouldn't be just talking about females. You know, myself as a female, dyslexic, gay woman should be able to you know, really proudly talk about that and the challenges that we have. But being very much aware that there are still, you know, many parts of society where standing up and saying that or getting involved in that might be a challenge for the group of people you're working for. And it's how, particularly when you're trying to get key points across or trying to do key things for the organisation, we're still not there in terms of being able to stand up and really say that openly and confidently and I think that is still just you know lived experiences what I'm trying to do and I'm you know I know Desi yourself have always tried to do is by us talking about this by us being open and transparent about it and saying you can still be a leader then hopefully we will encourage more people to say I can talk about this even though I've had a bad experience previously I can now talk about it openly and transparently. And the more people we can do that, you know, our students are much better at it than some of our staff and managers, actually. But the more we can talk about it, the more that we break down those barriers. It's the not talking that creates the barriers. And I know I've still got to deal with what I would call those things that people call banter, which isn't good enough. We, you know, we need to eradicate that because that's the intimidating bit. We might as an organization say, hey, look at all these people in the organization who, you know, you can be anything you want to be. But if there's still banter going on, on WhatsApps or in, you know, staff rooms, then that is still a challenge for people. And I think I haven't got to the bottom of it yet. I haven't got 1,300 staff who are open and transparent and, and don't make um, individuals uh, feel wary about things. And I think that's still a journey that we've got to go on. I was really shocked recently. I was talking to a group of students in a college where uh, one girl was quite upset because she was saying in the community she's living in, she could not walk down the road with her partner because they're gay without being victimised for it. And living where I do in sort of Oxford and the southeast, I mean, it's just the norm. And I thought, oh, my God, there are still parts of England where we're 
in my version, in the dark ages. So I think we have to constantly, I would agree with you, Jana, it's about always being on the alert. And banter is really dangerous. Yeah, and I think it's it's many cultures as well. So there are many cultures and, you know, small pockets where I live, absolutely fine. But I know I could travel 10 miles and go into one particular community and that would not be okay. And, you know, you have to be conscious of that. But actually, you know, I haven't suffered any particular negative experience in my life, but I'm very much aware of people who have and therefore are wary. But I know that I've got to make sure that the college is that safe haven for everybody to be themselves. And at the moment, that's still about educating more and more of our staff to do that and encouraging more of our staff to call out other staff who aren't doing that, actually, under the guise of banter. So, Desi, what needs to happen for you to feel safe and respected when you are that minority voice, the token in the room, so to speak? I think the first thing I'd say is that um, it's not unusual to feel, I suppose, uncomfortable in that situation. As you get more experienced, confidence comes with it. And I think it's recognising that actually other people may not be as confident and and being aware that people may feel uncomfortable in that situation in terms of not being that minority and not feeling that they can speak out. But actually, we as leaders have got to create that environment. And, I, you know... Jan is absolutely right. I'd be really surprised if any organisations can say that they've got this all covered. But we set those expectations. We should never, never compromise on those expectations. And as leaders, we set that tone and we deal and challenge and we educate and we promote and we champion equality, diversity and inclusivity. I think right at the beginning of our conversation today, I, you know, I talked about we're the product of our genes and our experiences. That is so much that colleagues are bringing to the organization. Why, you know, we would be a lesser organization if we didn't utilize that experience and that expertise because that importance of diversity and the importance of including everybody amongst our staff can only ensure that we are meeting the needs of our communities and our student cohort because that they are also reflective of that diversity and inclusivity. Students now, absolutely, I think Jana's point is, well, students now will speak out more so than staff will. So I think it's, it's more that journey with staff. And sometimes there's a fear that among staff that they might say the wrong thing. So it's about going on that journey with individuals and talking through things. There may be unintended comments and statements, but expectations have got to be there. One of the things I remember is that I was asked to go and speak to an ESOL class because they were getting their certificates. And I didn't realise what I was saying, but at the end, what I was going to say would have such an impact. But at the end, a number of the students came back to me because I was able to talk that I was the first born of two immigrant parents who came to the country in 1965. And now I'm only benefited from that because the benefits I've achieved in the country, as the benefits I got from the country, but also the hard work my parents have put in. But that resonated with them, you know, and I didn't connect that. But actually, I bring those experiences. But there are other colleagues who have got a very different experience to me that is equally as important. I think it's just creating that environment, one, where people feel safe, but they'll feel safe if we challenge. But we also talk. We openly talk about things. And we can never do too much of that, because if you look in the news at the moment and the news stories around the influencer, Andrew Tate, Nobody in this organisation, 
I would expect would say that's acceptable, but it's happening. And there's organizations there, we're, we're educational organizations, we've got to call that out, challenge it, have discussions about it, because it's not just words that we might hear, because a lot of it's happening on people's phones. How do we tackle that? Because it's not always as visible as it used to be. So people might say, actually, we're a more tolerant society. Are we? Is it hidden more behind screens now than it was before? And actually, it's more personal to people because it's instant. So we as an organization have still got to get better at making people feel safe around the digital world rather than just the corridors, the classrooms, the space outside the college. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you, particularly on the digital space. So I'm going to on to my last question. How do you personally, Desi, promote and embed kindness and well-being? I've still got more to do, Sally. That's where I would start. And I think it goes back to that reflection bit. I think you know what I do now is different to what I would have done two or three years ago, what I would have done five or six years ago. But I would also say that this college is very different to what it was two years ago, five years ago, and therefore it will be different again in two and three and four or five years ago. So it's constantly adapting and changing and not saying, well, this is working now, so it will always work. For me, it's about, I'll go back to those things about setting high standards and high expectations and actually the way I behave, the way I speak to colleagues, the way I carry myself and not just what I talk about, that's really important. So it's setting a tone. I'll go back to those things I said, which may seem really small, but actually make a big impact. Visibility, doing those small things that make a difference to individuals, because actually they are more powerful than words or documents. And I think that is where I'd probably say. Thank you. I'd also say the things you said at the beginning, you know, sending those cards, those little personalised, I think that shows a great deal of kindness. What about you, Yana? How do you promote kindness and well-being? I think talking about it, so kindness and well-being are getting involved in that as, as our values, so making sure that they're a key element. It's about trying to spend as much as my time as well actually being operational. So sitting in meetings that you still have to sit in from everything from impact reviews to SARS, all those things. So you're hearing the challenges that are going on in the classroom because I think if you can hear the challenges that are happening, then you start to understand the impact you have on people so that all decisions that we make have to have that empathy about them. Okay, what this decision, what will the impact be on our different groups of staff, on our different groups of students, and how can we change that? And conversely, so our um, executive meeting each week has well-being on it has the cost of living on it at the moment so we have to talk about what is it that we could do to look after people right now because it's important you know and we're introducing different things that is about saying we have to just find the way so you put money second and you put the needs of our staff and student first because I think if you make morally and ethically the right decision based on your looking after individuals you'll probably end up it'll all be all right in the end I think if you immediately go, we cannot afford that, it's probably the wrong decision. It's about saying we have to afford it almost and putting those in place. And I think as a result, some, you know, we introduced, and I know other colleges have as well, not only free breakfast now, but we give free lunch to every student at the organisation, just a soup and a sandwich. But the impact on that for students thinking that we are looking after them, that little thing, for that, you know, a particular group of students, 
because not everybody wants to take it, but if they do, it's there and it's free and everyone can have it. But actually, what we realized is that also had an impact on our staff's view of things because they were like, wow, okay, we've definitely got to look after these students. So I, I think it is in the decision making for me is leading to two things. First of all, I have to be at the college as much as possible in the important meetings that aren't just about strategy. They're about operation because then I can really find out what's going on. And as Desi said, walk around, find out what's going on. And secondly, always think of the impact on the people that this policy, procedure, decision is going to have and review that and talk to as many people as you can. And I think ultimately you probably end up tweaking it. You will never be able to support everyone, but hopefully you then make a decision which is kind and fair and, and just does the right thing. I mean, that's ultimately it, isn't it? Being Looking after people's welfare and being kind and everything else is really just doing the right thing. And sometimes it's about saying you just have to tear up an old policy and redo it, turn up an old procedure and redo it and just look after people. I think if we can, you know, make people come to the college feeling, as you said earlier, safe and empowered and treat them as professionals as well. You know, don't work to the lowest common denominator on it. Treat everyone as professionals. I think all those little bits come together. As you said, it is a journey. We're nowhere near the end of it, but hopefully we're starting to make people feel that the issues they have, we understand a little bit more than maybe we did. I also think by turning up at those meetings, you're making people feel valued. So you're not only learning about your organisation, but I would feel valued that you would turn up for my meeting. Yeah, I think the mistake sometimes of senior leaders is to say, it's very, very important I go to this external meeting. It's very, very important I meet with all these stakeholders. I don't see how you can make any decision with those stakeholders if you don't know what's going on in the classroom. So, you know, you have to spend an awful lot of time still understanding that and getting involved in it to make those decisions with the external stakeholders. Well, it's a bit like feeding people at lunchtime. Again, that's been proven. Your brain uses up your most energy. If you're underfed, physiologically, your brain can't function well. So actually, not only are you making them feel good because they're fed, you're also helping them to learn. Can I thank both of you enormously for giving up your time? It's been a fascinating conversation. And it's lovely to see where you're doing very similar things, but also where you're diverging and doing different things, which will be really helpful for the people listening. It has been brilliant. Thank you, Yana, and thank you, Desi, enormously for giving up your time. Thank you, Sally. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. This programme is delivered by Association of Colleges, commissioned by the Education and Training Foundation on behalf of the Department for Education. <laughs>